Our scripture reading this morning is uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Or 1 to 12, sorry. It'd be quite short if it was 1 to 2. <laughs> In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he was killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the hairs on your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. All right. Good to see your faces. It's been a little while. I've uh, had a nice few weeks off, and it's good to be back, though. Um, what is your greatest fear? I won't have you shout it up because that might be a little bit embarrassing. Um, but ask yourself that question What is your greatest fear? Um, we all live with some level of fear, don't we? Um, it's just part of being a human being. What's your greatest fear? Here's just a few that you might be familiar with. The fear of being alone. The fear of losing someone you love. The fear of losing financial security. Spiders. Yes. Uh, the fear of what others think of you, it's a crippling one, or the big one, the fear of death. Uh, something I've noticed kind of being bombarded with recently on my kind of social media feeds are life hacks. You guys ever get these kind of articles? Um, I saw one recently that had the title, The 10 Biggest Fears That Hold You Back From Living Your Best Life. Um, and it's essentially an article that, that gives you all these life hacks, ways to kind of overcome these fears so that you can be happy. And um, it talked about the fear of failure and gave you some steps or a little class that you can take to hack that fear. Uh, the fear of losing control, here's some, some steps you can take to overcome that fear and regain your happiness. Um, and listen, I'm not against uh, some kind of 
life hack, I'm not against like wisdom or uh, taking steps to, uh, to make life a little bit easier, but um, uh, there's one thing that you'll never ever find in those kind of articles, and that's biblical wisdom. Okay, you never really find the Bible's solution. But the Bible talks a lot about fear. Uh, the scriptures make it clear that we're meant to have fear, and when that fear is in its right place, then you will flourish in life. But when fear is out of place, things go terrible. That's the kind of opening chapters of the Bible teaches that. In fact, the Bible teaches that humanity's greatest problem is we have a misplaced fear. That the world's greatest problem is that we have no fear of God. That, that's what's at the root of all that's wrong in the world. There's a lot that's wrong in the world, isn't there? And think of all the pain in your life. Think of all the suffering surrounding you, the suffering through the city. And the root of all of it, the Bible tells us, is that we've lost our fear of God. Uh, fear can be greatly misunderstood, especially in our culture today, which is more and more being built on a skewed kind of misunderstanding of welcome and acceptance. Our culture says that you must accept me no matter what, and if you don't, then you are in the wrong. Um, in one sense, it's an attempt to, to remove all fear from relationships. And, and when we import that view of welcome and acceptance into our understanding of what it means to have a relationship with God, what it means to approach God, then things go terribly bad. Uh, because the Bible teaches us that, that we were meant to have a fear of God. And now, did, did, Adam, did, did God create Adam and Eve to kind of cower and tremble in the darkness? Um, of course not. That's the opposite of what you read in the, the opening chapters of Genesis, right? Um, in fact, he created us to, to walk with him, to, to stand before him unafraid as children who enjoy the presence of their loving father. But where you see this go completely wrong, um, come to Genesis chapter 3, is, is Adam and Eve's peace with God, peace in his presence, that's broken as soon as they ditch their fear of God. And that's when they begin to hide from him and tremble in the shadows. And so we talk a lot about many kind of upside-down realities of the Bible. Um, the, the way up is actually down. And, and this is one of those foundational upside-down realities, that, that you were created to stand unafraid and unashamed before God Almighty, God Almighty and all of his holiness. But the way to actually do that is to fear him. There's a difference between uh, being afraid and fearing, right? To, to have an awe and a reverence of God's holiness and, and a respect of his statutes and to, to walk according to his ways, right? That's, that's what we were created to, 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 to do and to be. And as, as soon as we stop fearing him in that way, then we scatter like roaches into the shadows, right? Like, like Adam and Eve, we begin to, to cower and tremble in the darkness. Because we've lost our fear of God, we become afraid of him. Do you see that upside-down reality makes sense? That, that all that is wrong and twisted and broken in the world, it stems from, have a, from a lack of fear of God. Right? We've rejected who he is. We've rejected his holy authority. We've ceased fearing his judgment. And we've desired to, to put ourselves in his place on his throne. And then everything falls apart. And the worst indictment that we read is what I read in, in Psalm 36, verse 1. It says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Right? So, so trans rebellion speaks to the guilty one deep in his heart. It, it lives in there. It's, it rumbles around. It's, it's what we have in our hearts. And it says the reason is 
So there's no fear of God before our eyes. The Apostle Paul quotes that passage in Romans 3 as part of his charge that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, right? We, we, we don't try to please God. We, we, we kind of cower away from Him. So according to the Bible, where we've gone wrong is we have no fear of God. And Scripture also puts fear of God in, in the positive, right? It's the solution. So this is what you never get in the, the kind of life hack articles. It's Psalm 111 verse 10 that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. Or Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Uh, friends, misplaced fear is disastrous, but appropriate fear of God leads to life, leads to peace. So what's your greatest fear? What's your greatest concern in life? If, if it's not God, then you're on a dangerous, dangerous path. And Jesus has some words for his disciples concerning just that here at the start of Luke chapter 12. Let me pray one more time and we'll look at what it looks like to have a fear of God. Um, Lord, we thank you for um, welcoming us in. We thank you that we can actually boldly approach your throne uh, because of Jesus, that through the blood of Jesus we come as children, as sons and daughters. Uh, show us what it looks like, Lord, to, to see who you are, to know who you are. Spirit, teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And don't forget what this segment of Luke's gospel is all about. So we're in that, uh, that kind of journey to, journey to Jerusalem section, which carries that theme of discipleship, okay? So, so this section is answering that question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? If Jesus really is the king of God's eternal kingdom, what does it look like to be part of his kingdom? What does it look like to be his disciples and to follow after him? And we must note that, that we're seeing already that there is a specific way to follow him. We're seeing already that there are some who will follow in his ways and some who will not. Right? In, in other words, not everyone is part of his kingdom. Not, not everyone follows the way of Jesus. And we've seen that just through chapter 11. So, so think back through chapter 11. It begins with his disciples asking Jesus, teach us to pray. Right? They, they, they see Jesus live uh, in step with God the Father. They, they see this life of total dependence on, on him, and they say, show us how to do that, Jesus. And, and, and he, he does. He has words for them, and he teaches them how to pray. And then as we continue through chapter 11, we see that, that Jesus has words for others as well, right? Words for those who, who are not following him. He has words for those who, who take issue with his casting out of demons, he has words for those who, who only seek a sign from him. And his most serious uh, and kind of uh, damning words are for the Pharisees and the religious experts, right, who, who hypo hypocritically only care about external cleanliness rather than the internal realities of their hearts. Do, do you see that, that Jesus is making it very clear that, that there's two ways of life, right? There, there's a way that leads to death and there's a way that leads to life. We've established already that the, the way that leads to death is this life of misplaced fear. That the Pharisees, they didn't really fear God, did they? Instead, they feared what others thought of them. And Alan looked at that last week. And actually, in Matthew's account of that scene, where Jesus has those woes for the Pharisees, he makes it even more clear. And there, Jesus says, they do all these deeds to be seen by others. 
That, that, that's why they do all of this. That, that, that's, that's why they, they like the best seats, seats in the synagogues. That, that's why they're pr- praying loudly in the marketplace. That their chief concern is not the judgment of God, but the judgment of those around them. That this is this temptation to live for the approval and the respect of men. They have a misplaced fear. They, they lacked fear of the Lord and only feared the judgment of their peers. And this path is a path that leads not to life, but a path that leads to destruction. It's a path that leads away from God to death. But then there's a way of life that, that leads to closeness with God, that leads to intimacy with Him. And, and that way is to, uh, this way of, of, of total dependence on Him and, and following after His ways. And, and that way leads to life. It's to make your, the way that leads to life is to make your chief concern to, to be what God thinks. To, to fear his ways. And, and we feel the strain of those two, two ways, don't we? I feel the strain of those two ways. I, I feel the strain to, of the first way, or the bottom way on the screen there. That, that Psalm 36 way, speaking deep in my heart, to, to have no fear of God in my sight, or, or to, fear, to fear mostly what others think of me rather than what God thinks of me. And so we must listen to Jesus' words here in the first 12 verses of chapter 12, because he has some words for his disciples who will feel that struggle. It's this mini-sermon for how to cultivate a fear of God in your life. Um, Actually, in verse 1, you see Jesus kind of walk his talk, right? He exemplifies this when we're told that a crowd of many thousands of people gathered together. It says there's so many people that they're, they're trampling over one another, Many churches, many Christian leaders will look at that and, and say, well, that's success, right? Uh, we, we love to measure ministry effectiveness by numbers. The fear of man often expresses itself in a love of crowds. But Jesus is not impressed with numbers, right? He, he never preaches to please a crowd. In fact, he, he often does the opposite. He often leaves the large crowds to be with a smaller group of disciples. And that's what he does here. Right? Thousands are stampeding to see him, and Jesus just turns to speak to his small group of disciples, and he gives them this, this kind of short yet, yet magnificently weighty and important sermon on how to cultivate the fear of the Lord in your life. And he has four points. The first one is in verses 1 to 3, is don't fear the judgment of man, fear the coming judgment of God. Don't fear the judgment of man, fear the coming judgment of God. And he says in verse one, as the crowds are pressing in, he turns to his disciples and he says, listen guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Right? Like he says in the previous chapter, the Pharisees, they're, they're Pharisees, how do you say <laughs> The Pharisees, Pharisees, um, they're only concerned with the cleanliness of the outside of the cup, Right? The external cleanliness, while he says inside are full of greed and wickedness. Does the exterior look clean? Why was that their chief concern? Well, because they, they do everything for, for, for others to see. Their, their, their concern is not the judgment of God, but the judgment of man. And so they, did, they said one thing, but they did another. That's what hypocrisy is, right? It's living a double life. It's when people praise God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. They, 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 they go to church on Sunday, but through the week, they completely don't live by what they're saying amen to. They, they presented an external picture that did not match the internal reality. And Jesus says, listen, what's dangerous about hypocrisy is that it spreads. 
like a little leaven, like a little yeast. It spreads through the entire dough. It's actually so powerful that it affects us today, right? Actually, it's, it's, it's not, think, don't think of like a little packet of yeast that you add to, to, to uh, like water and flour and then the yeast makes it rise. The, the leaven that they're used to is more like sourdough starter, right? So did anyone start making sourdough during lockdowns? Anybody? Yeah, a few. Anybody still making sourdough? You still, hey, I still got my sourdough starter going, right? Better than you guys. Um, actually, I got my sourdough starter from Chloe uh, at the beginning. Um, if you don't know how it works, well, um, the, the, the leaven of sourdough starter, it doesn't have yeast in it. It's, it's fermented dough that, that you add a little bit to uh, the, the flour and the water, and then you, but you keep a little bit back behind. And then you use that to make another dough, but you keep a little bit back behind. And so each dough, actually every, every uh, batch of bread that I've made has a little bit of Chloe's sourdough starter in it. And if, if you pass it on and on and on. And Jesus, he uses this as an analogy for sin in our lives. So even though there are no actual Pharisees around anymore, their leaven remains as a serious spiritual threat. Pastor and author Mike McKinley wrote, Whenever we Christians today are tempted to pretend to be more holy than we are, whenever we are unwilling to confess sin and ask for help, whenever we establish our own man-made rules as the standard for everyone's holiness, whenever we are comfortable with private sins, as long as they do not come to light, in those situations, the leaven of the Pharisees is present. So Jesus says, beware of that leaven, hypocrisy. And he tells us why in verse two. He says, because nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Right, so hypocrisy, it depends on this notion that we can hide the truth about ourselves. That, that, that's what Adam and Eve tried to do, right? They, they hid their shame, they hid their nakedness, they hid their sin from God. But, but the truth that Jesus is reminding his followers here is God sees all. There's nothing hidden from his eyes. That's what he told the Pharisees in, I keep saying that, Pharisees in, in chapter 11, verse 40. He said, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? God made you. He knows you. He, he sees everything with you. Everything will be revealed. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. What's he reminding them of there? He's reminding them of the coming judgment of God, right? That, that one day each of us will stand before the Lord and give an account for our lives, both the lives that we presented for others and the real reality life that was hidden. And the call Jesus is saying here is for those to match up, that Christians, we are to live with integrity. Disciples of Jesus, they don't say one thing and then act another way. Disciples of Jesus, don't, don't whisper things in private that you don't want heard shouted from the housetops. Disciples of Jesus live with integrity, that they live upright, non-hypocritical lives. And, and what's the motivation for living these upright, non-hypocritical lives? It doesn't come from a fear of what others think. It comes from a proper fear of what God thinks, because he is the God who sees all and knows all and one day will judge all. He's, he's answering that question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? 
What it means to, to be follower of Jesus, it means asking yourselves regularly, am I being a hypocrite? A- a- am, I, am I gossiping? Am I, am I saying one thing but acting another way? Am I presenting one way to others and then something else is happening in private? Do I fear God's judgment? If, if you never ask those kinds of questions, that's a good indication that you don't really fear the judgment of God. We, we, we examine ourselves in that way because fearing the searching, all-seeing judgment of God is the first step in cultivating the fear of the Lord. Your chief concern should not be what man thinks of you, but rather what your heavenly Father thinks of you. And that's his second point in verses four to seven, is fear the Father. Look at those verses. He says, I tell you, my friends. I love that he calls them my friends, right? Because he's about to say something pretty serious. And so he wants to get their attention. He wants to remind them who they are. Don't be afraid of what I'm about to say, although you should, you should hear it and, and take it seriously. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So why do we give in to hypocrisy? Why, why do we gossip? Why do we say one thing and then act another way? Because we have a misplaced fear, right? We fear man instead of God. And, and right here, Jesus says, friends, let me tell you where your, friend, where your fear should be located. And he tells them about two aspects of God's character that we must understand, we must embrace and respect. His terrifying power on one hand and his trustworthy love on the other. Both are, are true of him. And if you don't know both, then you don't know the Father. He says, don't fear, don't fear man. And I love how he, how he jumps to the most extreme thing man can do to you. Kill your body, right? That, that's the worst someone can do to you, right? Maybe. But it's pretty bad. And, and it's interesting that, that Jesus, he almost belittles death here bodily death. He never belittles sorrow, he never belittles grieving, but he, he does belittle death sometimes, right? The, the point here is, he's, what can man do to you? Kill your body? Okay, then what? Nothing. There's nothing else they can do, and, and there, there's a, a lesson here for, for the Christian. Physical death is not something to fear. In, in fact, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 talks about physical bodily death as an upgrade, <laughs> Right? He, he says, to die is gain. To, to die means I get to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. It's, just, it's a reward. Tim Keller says, all death can now do to Christians is to make their lives infinitely better. In fact, on his, on his deathbed, some of his final words to his family were, there's no downside of me leaving. Not in the slightest. Jesus says, don't fear the one who kills you physically and then has nothing else they can do, what you should fear is spiritual death. Or more accurately, the one who executes spiritual death. Listen, one day you will die and you will face a God who has the absolute and final authority to send you to eternal punishment for your sins and misdeeds. 
That's a very unpopular and offensive message in our culture, but it's one that the Bible teaches. It's one that, that Jesus believes. And here he's saying that we must take that seriously. Friends, do you fear? Are you in awe? Are you in reverence to the one who will one day separate humanity into two groups? Those who feared him and responded accordingly and enter into his eternal rest, and those who did not fear him and are sent away to destruction. Do you fear him? Are you in awe of him? Now, is that, is that all that we are to know of this father? No. Are, are, are we to be uh, children who, who flinch every time our father raises his hand? No. Absolutely not, because Jesus makes it clear another side of his, of his character, another side of learning to fear God's person is that we must learn to, to, to trust and love and appreciate God's goodness. Think of verse 6, he says, yes, I tell you, fear him, but here's his reasoning. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Even the hairs on your head are all numbered, fear not, for you are more value than many sparrows. Jesus is a master preacher, isn't he? Like like he follows up one of the most terrifying and serious statements about God with one of the sweetest and and most gentle and loving statements about him. He's showing us what is inside this awesome and holy and just God's heart. What's inside there is gentle compassion for his children. That's who he is. That's who he wants us to, to, to know is both sides of that. I have two girls, and they're not like, they're far, far from like dating age, but when they get there and they bring a boy home, I want them to know my, my compassion and love, but I want them to know a bit of fear as well, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Je- Jesus' goal, is, it's not to, to lessen the seriousness of God's judgment. His goal is to show you all of who this awesome God is. And if you don't know both aspects, then you don't know him. In Jesus' day, you could buy five sparrows for two pennies. It's cheap. They're not worth much in the eyes of men. They aren't even worth much in the eyes of men today. And he says, even those sparrows' lives are precious in God's sight. He doesn't forget one of them. He knows and cares for every single one. And here is Jesus, one of his lesser to greater arguments. If God cares that way for sparrows, how much more does he care for his people? If he cares that way for for sparrows that are kind of worthless in the eyes of men, how much more does he care for his own children? In fact, his care for his children is so particular that he knows the hairs on your head. That's an impossible kind of love that we have Difficulty wrapping our minds around. His love for you is not of this world. He loves you deeply, and he loves you ferociously. And because of this, Jesus says, fear not. Right right there, that's where you see the upside-down nature of, of biblical fear. The upside-down result of, of fearing God is you then enter into a life of peace. 
Having the appropriate fear of God, it results in a return to the garden in a sense. Experiencing life and peace and, and, and standing unafraid before the presence of God and, and walking with Him, knowing Him and being known by Him and enjoying His nearness. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that what you desire? And Jesus presents us with those two ways of life again, fear of man and His judgment or fear of God and His judgment. Which of those will you fear? You must choose one. Friends, please hear Jesus' reasoning for for fearing the Father because your physical life, your physical death is not the end of your story and God is the one who determines your eternal destiny but also because he is trustworthy and his love for you is steadfast and fearing him actually leads to a life of peace. Fearing man only leads to more fear. It's a life of being perpetually anxious and afraid. Fearing God leads to peace and joy. Fear not, Jesus says. You're more valuable than sparrows. Rest in his love. You can actually stop fearing man. You can stop fearing physical death. You can stop fearing judgment. You see, this way of life actually leads to boldness. So fear of the Father leads to not being afraid and into boldness. Fear of the Father and His judgment, which is intertwined with knowledge of His compassion and His love for His children, it leads us to fear of the Son. This fear enables enables us to acknowledge who Jesus is, that He is this this mediator that stands between us and the Father, and it it enables us to acknowledge Jesus before others boldly. To to boldly confess Christ as Lord before men. Look at verse 8. It says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, well, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So that phrase at the start of verse 8, and I tell you, it it means rather, or it means in in other words, or or, uh, it means on the other hand. And so he's saying, instead of fearing man who can kill your body, fear God. And this is what that way of life looks like. What does it look like to fear the Father? It will look like boldly acknowledging and confessing Jesus Christ as, as Jesus as Christ before the world. His reasoning is this. Since your heavenly Father gives constant supervision and care to even, to even as seemingly insignificant creatures like sparrows, surely he will also care for his disciples in their mission to bring good news and to proclaim the kingdom. He cares about you so much more than sparrows. So you can go out with boldness. You can go and proclaim the, the gospel of Christ without any fear. That's what Jesus is is urging us to do. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, when when you stop caring about what the world thinks about you and instead live boldly in your confession of me, that that shows what your faith is, right? That's what it does. It, it, It reveals what's inside of your heart, whether there is fear of man in there or fear of God. And that's so pertinent in our cultural situation, isn't it? where we live in a a, a cultural moment where the world will think you are a fool for following Jesus. Some will accuse you of being completely backwards and antiquated for your your fearing God and, and holding to a biblical way of life, His standards. 
whether that's holding to a biblical view of sex and marriage that's revealed for one man and one woman, or for saying that every life is valuable, even a tiny one in a womb, or for holding a biblical view on how to spend your money and your, your riches in this world, or maybe it's just people saying, you're weird for going to church on Sunday and singing and raising your hands. What a waste of time. Whatever it is, there's lots that you'll be accused of simply for being a Christian. And a Christian can easily avoid persecution by denying that they're a disciple of Jesus or simply by keeping it quiet. But the true disciple of Jesus does not fear death and will confess Jesus before men. Romans 9, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And the eternal consequence for those who deny Christ will be that he will deny them, which will be far worse than the persecution that they seek to avoid. Fear the Father, fear the Son, lest we perish. It's heavy teaching, isn't it? It's, it's not a light teaching from Jesus here. It's weighty, but it's so important. And again, Jesus doesn't teach things to, to simply to please people, but rather to open up their hearts to the truth. And he does it out of love. He, he's, he's speaking the truth in love here. Fear the Father and fear the Son. And in verse 10, he completes his Trinitarian lesson with fear the Spirit. Look at verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Uh, this is one of those like, most debated and, and misunderstood sayings of Jesus' ministry. Uh, so it seems that Jesus makes this distinction between, on one hand, the extreme case of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and then on the other hand, the lesser case of speaking in a dishonorable way uh, of the Son of Man, Jesus himself. And so many people will read this passage and think, well, Tell me what the, the first one is, right? Tell me what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. I want to make sure I don't do that, right? This unforgivable sin. There's a lot of debate over what the, the meaning of those words are, but sometimes it's helpful to, to, to look at what Jesus doesn't mean to, in order to understand. It, it can't be that Jesus is teaching that there's, there's a sin out there that's too great to be covered by his atoning sacrifice, 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? John's not saying that's true except for one little thing, but I'm not going to mention that now, all right? He's, he's, he's faithful and just to, to forgive you when you confess of your sins. So instead, most scholars agree that it's best to understand what Jesus is saying there as a, as a warning against the persistent and unrepentant resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Jesus is warming, warning us against the persistent and unrepentant resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit and his message concerning Jesus. Jesus is saying there will be no forgiveness for the person who persists in the hardening of his heart against God, against the work of the Holy Spirit, against the provision of Christ as their Savior. And listen, if, you, if you're sitting there and you have a worry about this, that's pretty good evidence that you haven't done this, right? That you, you have an openness, you have a concern, you have a fear for him and what he is doing. That's a good thing. But, but what is he talking about when he brings up the Holy Spirit here? You get a sense of what he's, he's trying to get to in the last verses. And so he says in verse 11, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. 
for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So what is Jesus getting at when he's bringing up the Holy Spirit? He's he's talking about his disciples having a relationship with God here. It's, It's not only about us fearing God, it's also about God um, helping and giving provision to his children, right? That, that's what a relationship is. It, it's a back and forth. It's, it's, it's a, it goes both ways, right? This relationship isn't just about us fearing God. It's also about God providing and caring for us. And he does that by the Holy Spirit working in our lives, teaching us and leading us. He's talking about having a relationship with God. He's he's talking about dependence on Him as the only way forward. There's no other way except by fearing God and daily depending on Him every step in your life. He's saying if you are resistant to that, the only way ahead is towards destruction and death. But if you're submitting to the Holy Spirit and, and listening and open to Him, He will guide you to everlasting life. It's interesting, isn't it, that chapter 11 and chapter 12, they begin with the same message. Look back at the beginning of chapter 11. At the beginning of chapter 11, he's he's teaching them to pray, and his argument for why they should persist in their prayers is in verse 13, right? That that argument of, don't you know who your heavenly father is? Like, like if, if, if human fathers know how to good gifts to good gifts to good gift good gifts to their children, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Right, and we said that a few weeks ago, that the message there is for those who desire a life of total dependence on God and intimacy with Him in every step of their lives, God will not just answer your prayers by meeting the the needs in your life. He'll answer your prayers by coming directly into your lives Himself, by, by sending His Spirit to come and dwell within you amazing. And here he says that back at the beginning of chapter 12, he's saying to his disciples, don't be resistant of that. Daily, step-by-step relationship with God by way of him sending his Holy Spirit to lead you. Total dependence on him in every scenario in your life. It's the only way forward. There is no other way. It's interesting that the chapters 11 and 12, they open with Jesus having this intimate conversation with his disciples, and he's encouraging them into this this relationship with God, A, by being in awe of who he is, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and B, by living a life of total dependence on God by receiving the Holy Spirit in their lives, right, by by receiving the Spirit's guidance and, and direction, And here in chapter 12, verse 11, he gives an example of what that might look like. He says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, so notice he doesn't say if they bring you there, but when, right? He's preparing them, he's preparing us for persecution. He says, when when persecution comes your way, what does he say? Do not be anxious. Don't be afraid. Don't fear those who can merely kill your body. Their opinions of you don't matter. The only opinion that matters is your Father in heaven, so don't be anxious. 
Don't worry about how you're going to defend yourself and what you should say. Why? The Holy Spirit's going to help you. He's going to guide you through the darkest valleys in your life. Isn't that such a comfort? Listen, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. God loves you. He loves you deeply. He'll care for you. He'll guide your every step, but he does deserve your fear. He deserves your awe and your reverence. Can I end by reading you from a kid's book? Um, C.S. Lewis was a master storyteller, and he explained this truth that we're trying to get at in an imaginative way. And one of my favorite scenes that he wrote was in The Silver Chair, part of the Narnia series, where the young girl, Jill, she's entered into this, this strange wood in the land of Narnia, and she's thirsty, and she's walking in search of water. And she finds a stream, but she stops dead in her tracks. And Lewis writes this. Although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open, and she had very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, for she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she cannot be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could get a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared and wondered who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And she realized that it was the lion speaking. She had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this time by only a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls, asked Jill. I've swallowed up boys and girls, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry, it just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. 
then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose, my, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Friends, approach God without fear and trembling, and you will be devoured. But approach him with reverence and awe, and he will satisfy your deepest longings. Let's stand and pray. Father, what and and what a terrifying yet comforting thought that you know everything about us. You know the, the deepest recesses of our heart. You know what we do in the, the hidden places. And yet how incredible is it to think that you love us ferociously. And you call us to yourself. Fearfully, humbly, you call us to be satisfied, to receive life. You want us, you desire us. Lord, I pray for those who are calling them this morning, maybe for the first time. Lord, give them that appropriate fear, but also give them boldness to, to, to confess with their mouths who, their mouths who you are and receive salvation, receive satisfaction for their souls. I pray, Lord, who we've been on the journey for a long time and we're, we're tempted to, to forget, we're tempted to get comfortable, we're tempted to, to, to just go with the flow and, and go in the motions and, and you're saying, listen to me, that's dangerous. You must walk fearfully in my presence, but through the blood of Jesus, you can fear not. You can enjoy my presence fearfully in a joyful kind of way. We thank you for that, Lord. Press that deeper into our hearts, we pray. Amen.